excited to be here today. Um, I'm excited to later go back and listen to a couple seconds of this and put my phone down in frustration because of how annoying my voice is. Um, hopefully it's not annoying for you. Who is God? This is a question that all societies throughout human history have attempted to answer. There's a seemingly unending plethora of religious and spiritual traditions out there, past and present, that have tried to know and understand the supernatural, often taking the form of some sort of being or force that lies beyond us, beyond humanity. For most of us here today, we probably believe in the God presented for us in the Christian Bible. But even then, there's lots of different portrayals of God, even throughout those books. There's a lot of troubling stories about God. But at Koinos, we believe that by starting with Jesus, things might make a bit more sense. I don't want to talk too much about the Bible because, spoiler alert, that's going to be its own sermon in a few weeks. But I do want to have kind of a quick rundown of this so that we're starting on the same page today. So first of all, we see throughout the Bible little glimpses of God, at least however God's people believed he was moving in the world. We see a God that seems to care deeply for an enslaved Israel, leading them up out of their condition from Egypt. We see a God who inspires his people to fight military giants and unjust rulers. We also see stories of a highly unusual God for those days who seems to radically care about how his people live in relation to their neighbors, to outsiders, and to the poor. A God who wants humanity to live rightly with each other, with themselves, with creation, and with the creator. And all of those stories lead up to Jesus. Tim read from the the prophet's book, Micah, uh, before that last song. We kind of see these hints in there. And we see that Jesus in the New Testament is sort of this archetype of God and humanity coming together. And of course, the life of Jesus culminates in his death on a cross. So I think that what that says is that the cross is this climactic moment in the Christian story. And therefore, it must be key to our understanding of the character of God. Fleming Rutledge discusses this stark uniqueness of the cross as a religious symbol quite well in her work, The Crucifixion. She says that too often today's Christians are lulled into thinking of their own faith as one of the religions without realizing that the central claim of Christianity is oddly irreligious at its core. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that the weakness and suffering of Christ was and is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. The cross of Jesus is this unrepeatable event that calls all religion into question and establishes an altogether new foundation for faith, life, and human future. So we're going to be spending the next few weeks leading up to Easter exploring these important aspects of Christianity from the specific perspective of the cross because of how important that is, that it's crucial to our faith. And I get the privilege of opening up these conversations by thinking about something that's really easy to cover in 20 minutes, God. So to start, I just want to read from Philippians 2, 6 through 11. It's going to be on our screen there. Just something for us to keep in mind as our context as we talk through this today. Paul writes, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he, Jesus, gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God 
and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now before we can talk about God from the perspective of the cross, we need some super basic history. The cross in those days was quite a bit darker than it is for most of us now with our ubiquitous little cross necklaces and knickknacks we have in our homes. In those days, the great and powerful Roman Empire used the cross as its means of of executing those it truly despised. Those who were the greatest threats to its power and control, often political activists, rebels, traitors, they would have been executed on a cross. And I apologize to be a bit morbid, but people in those days would have been familiar with the cross as a symbol, possibly in the same way we think about instruments like the electric chair or even a noose. Nothing good or hopeful and inspiring about it. In fact, theologian James Cone makes this connection between the cross and the lynching tree, which is perhaps for many of us the most disturbing method of execution that we can think of in our very own country's history something used to destroy and shame and kill somebody who was considered less. And Rome was an empire that thrived in its power by use of force and violence and brutality. It won, it grew by fear. Anybody who stood up to Rome faced the inevitability of destruction and death. So now let's shift from the cross to the Jewish people at that time, Israel, the tribes that worship the same God we do, who escaped Egypt and all that stuff. And they've been living under Roman rule for quite some time in this oppressive system. They have this resentment for the empire of Rome, especially because of their history, their records of God's word that over and over reinforce language and poetry and prophecy about how one day a Messiah, the one, will rise up and lead Israel to independence, freedom, and life in harmony with their God. So you can imagine that in this context, the people of God probably have this idea that this person is going to be some sort of powerful military leader who can rise up and defeat Rome. That's what they expect from their God. But then Jesus, who claims to be their Messiah, and says this new kingdom is coming that gets everybody all excited, he succumbs to the power of Rome. He's mostly silent as Rome mocks, tortures, and executes him on their cross. How does that make sense? What does it mean that an all-powerful, all-loving God who is beyond any human power would choose this death on a cross to demonstrate her character? Why would God choose this sort of death as a means of reestablishing a relationship to humanity? Theologian Professor Pete Enns, he says that it would have been offensive to a Roman and shameful to a Jew that one honored as a god had been crucified by the state, and it was counter to any idea of God held by educated people. It's remarkably unique, and it tells us something very, very important about the God we follow. I think there's a lot here to tackle. We're moving through this pretty quickly, but the cross presents to me one specifically big idea about who God is. So let's look at that big idea kind of from a zoomed out perspective. By choosing the cross, 
I think we witnessed that God initiated a revolutionary new kingdom built on universal love and restoration. It's easy to look at the world and be discouraged. Every day I see abusive systems of power, people in authority committing just terrible things, hurting people, oppressing those that our God commands us to care for and love, working primarily for status and personal success or success of their own rather than for the good of others. Whether it's injustice in our, race, in our um, justice systems, our economic systems, or the persecution of groups and countries all over the world, the prevalence of domestic violence, pick whichever one you want, it's easy to see all of this happening around us every day with no end in sight. It's easy to notice that those powers seem to win more often than not. Now recently, uh, my wife Mallory and I, we started watching the HBO series Game of Thrones. Now its content is pretty graphic, so don't take this as a recommendation necessarily, but the entire story is just full of power being won and defended with violence, greed, and brute force. Think of Breaking Bad or House of Cards or any other popular media portrayal of people fighting power, fighting for power. Maybe we're drawn to these stories because it's just not that far from our reality. Isn't it just the same old ways of the world for millennia, for thousands of years, being played out on screen? We humans have always desired power above all else. And therefore, our gods are mostly built the same way. Especially for the Israelites, every tribe, every culture at that time would have worshipped gods who endorsed violence and destruction of physical enemies. That's the norm. But imagine a new world where things are different. Imagine a God that acts in benevolent love rather than with vengeance and domination. A God who's more concerned with the evil in our hearts and in our systems than on building great cities and economies. I like what theologian N.T. Wright says, that there were lots of failed revolutionaries in Jesus' day, often ending up on Roman crosses. But Jesus' crucifixion means what it means because he's raised from the dead after three days. Easter commands us to think about a non-corruptible physicality, about a world that isn't subject to decay and death anymore. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is confronting the powers, the plotting Pharisees, demons shrieking, Adam, the puzzled disciples. He's confronting evil in all its forms and then goes into darkness in order to take its full weight upon himself. Where I find hope in the cross is that God is responding to those same earthly powers that disillusion and discourage me, showing that our universe is bigger than the ebb and flow of worldly power that doesn't last. Paul would later write that our fight is not against human beings in Ephesians 6.12. He would write that it's against the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world. It's against the spiritual forces of evil. If Jesus' death was fighting for something bigger than mere political, mere national victory, if it was fighting those very forces of evil at work in the world, then maybe a revolution has begun for all of us. The cross opens up a kingdom that redefines power as God's unstoppable love and shames the old systems of death. God tells a new story for all of us, for all of creation. It's good news 
that that old story is no longer no longer relevant. Franciscan teacher and thinker Richard Rohr summarizes his theology by explaining that when Jesus agreed to carry the mystery of universal suffering and then was resurrected, we were freed. His cosmic perspective on Christ tells us that this work is ongoing. God is always restoring and redeeming all of creation from that tired, destructive paradigm where all that matters is power, status, achievement, and success. God, the ultimate power, that's his work. N.T. Wright, again, says in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, that something has unleashed a new kind of power in the world, a chain-breaking, idol-smashing, sin-abandoning power called utter gracious love. It is the new reality. A new reality. Okay, so that idea that this is a God who starts a revolution of universal love and restoration, that's wild, but what does that really mean at an individual level? What does that mean for us? Well, here's that idea, kind of zoomed in a little bit. By choosing the cross, I think we witness that God is fundamentally defined by humble, nonviolent, self-giving, gracious love. Humble, nonviolent, self-giving, gracious love. That's what the cross says about God. While the greatest power in history at that point demonstrated power with brute force, God responded to it with humble love. He looks at the criminal dying beside him and promises that he's already in God's kingdom. He sees the brokenness and humanity even of his executioners crying out from the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Jesus accepts the shame of death on a cross in love to break down the power of oppression and justice and shame to break down this cycle that killed him. He flips the old ways on their head. He turns the tables. I really wanted to use one of my favorite Michael Scott quotes here, but it just didn't feel right about, well, 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 how the turntables. Um, I love it. So I'm going to throw it in there anyways. Allow me a modern example of this idea at work of God turning the tables on our systems of power. Let's think about Martin Luther King Jr. Now you'll remember that MLK was a Christian preacher and he described the way of love in this way. Nonviolence is absolute commitment to the way of love. Love is not emotional bash. It is not empty sentimentalism. Love is the active outpouring of one's whole being into the being of another. Love is the active outpouring of one's whole being into the being of another. I'm going to use that a lot. And it sounds like Jesus dying on a cross. MLK was committed to nonviolence, not out of passivity, but because he believed deeply that only through nonviolent acts could the contrasting violence of white supremacy's power be pointed out for its own evil. History shows us that one of the turning points in the civil rights movement was the televised attacks for all to see, the televised attacks by police on peacefully protesting black Americans. Seeing young people on screen treated so brutally by those in positions of power and authority was shocking and exposed just how wrong America's actions were. Pete Enns says that the cross makes a public spectacle, not of those who believe it, but of rulers and authorities. Colossians 2.15, Paul says that 
In this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. He shamed them by his victory on the cross. And this is kind of a theme throughout the life of Jesus, right? Maybe you recall the story when he's telling the people in front of him about this very belittling, shaming uh, law that Rome had, that if a Roman soldier asked you to carry his clothes for a mile, carry his gear for a mile, you were required to do it. But Jesus says, if a Roman soldier does that, take it a second mile. And what he's telling these people, what they would have heard there is that by doing that, it's kind of shaming the soldier for making such a belittling request by being completely willing and even taking an extra mile flips that idea, that old system, on its head. And finally, in the recounting of the crucifixion story in Luke, there's this subplot, this this little couple of sentences that I love, and it tells me a bit about how this obscene cross event backfires. Luke, in his accounting, notes a Roman soldier who's overseeing the execution, and he sees what is happening to Jesus, and finally proclaims at the end, Truly, this was an innocent man. It didn't work. So the cross shows us that the God we worship gives up any sense of respectable, fearsome power, like the power of Rome or the power of America, and humbles himself to shame the old ways of power in our world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Laying down that power is the power of God. What Paul meant is that death on a cross is, it's, yeah, it's foolish to those who live for the way things have always been done. Anybody who worships power finds the cross story absurd. Why would a God do that? But for those who have been discouraged who've been living under the thumb of injustice, the crushing weight of sin, who don't feel at home in those old ways of doing things. The cross points to solidarity with God. It points to salvation. Jesus said himself, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are poor. All we need to do to find freedom in this new kingdom is to embrace in our own lives the humble love shown by a God, a king who would die on a cross. Before we close today, I have two takeaways um, that I think are really important and relevant for us in some way. This is an angle that we can all think about that gives us something to, to take from today for our own lives. I want us to think again about something that theologian James Cohn has to say about God and the cross. Now, keep some context in mind. James Cone was writing as a black American a few decades ago, a rare black Christian theologian at that time, who experienced a lot of racism in both academia and in the church. And that, in context, is important. I'm grossly oversimplifying his view, but Cone said that by the nature of Jesus' death, God became the oppressed. This language suggests that there's an all-powerful God laying down his power and solidarity with those who have none. I think it gives us two pretty significant things to think about. The first side of that coin is that whenever and wherever we possess some element of power 
or influence or control. We find in Christ and in our God the example set of laying aside that power and solidarity or using it to restore those who are without, changing the very context. The example of an all-powerful God doing this is radical, shocking, and far-reaching, so I think it demands that we give deep consideration to how we relate to our spouses and children, who we help with our influence at work and politics and our communities, how we care for our planet and all its creatures, how we spend our money, how we respond to inequality in our systems. So I invite you to consider whom you have power over and how you are embodying a new kingdom in which the first becomes last and the last becomes first. Some of Jesus' final words were that this is what his kingdom would be defined by. The second takeaway is that whenever and wherever we suffer or experience injustice or pain or death, God is there beside us. God is beside us in that pain. Because he identifies with us in our darkest moments. When you feel hopeless, think of Jesus crying out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wanted to say that? I have. God as Jesus adopted the very universal human experience of pain at every level and knows and feels that hurt deeply. So I invite you to be honest right now about where you are hurting and ask God to sit with you in that pain. To close out today, I'm just going to say a prayer and uh, we're going to move into a time of communion then. God, may we recognize your power at work in the world around us, restoring all things, all humans back to you. Guide us to embrace your offer of freedom from the old ways and to join in that work of changing the world with your love. Amen.